Well, like Miles said, my name is Matt Cole. Uh, I'm the worship pastor here at Auburn Community Church. Been here for just over five years now, full time. I have lived in Auburn. I'm an Atlanta transplant, born and raised OTP. Um, that's outside the perimeter for those of you who don't know Atlanta. Um, and, and so it has been the biggest honor of my life to have been on this journey while ACC has been growing and God has been moving. Um, Caitlin and I both count it such an honor to be here. And even in this moment, I just want to thank the elders and Miles for even letting me stand here and take this mantle for a week. And, and what a lot of people don't get to see, the vast majority of people at ACC, is, is behind the scenes, behind those closed doors where the meetings of what is decided here and what is prayed about here and the vision and the direction. And I've, and I've gotten to be in those meetings and in those moments. And can I just encourage you and tell you that the, the realness, the honesty, the health that is in this place is real. Like, it's, it's not a hype show. Like, our elders are some of the healthiest people that I've ever met in my life. And so it is so cool to see God doing a work in and through people who have said, you know what, God, you can have all of us. And what's even crazier is that we have a lead pastor that has allowed me to stand here. And, and I, want, I want you to feel the gravity of the reality of this situation, like, Miles has let someone who is superior at every major sport stand <laughs> on his stage in this moment. And that's huge, y'all. God is on the move. Like, <laughs> the Spirit of God is on the move in this place. And for real, and Miles was like, bro, you better tell them the truth. He's a little better at basketball than me, and that's about it. Um, and so that's, that's the truth. Um, and so, in all seriousness, I'm so thankful to be here. And, and we've been in a series um, in Ephesians for a, a lot of weeks now, and it's been incredible. And if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go listen to it. Our college and community pastor, Gage Henry, brought a word. Yes, yes. It was, it was so good. It was so good, and it was so challenging. He, he, he challenged us with two things out of Ephesians 4. He said, spiritual maturity is an awareness of how much we need God. Like, you don't mature out of your need for God. Like, the people who are followers of Jesus realize that the, the more and the, the longer and the more deeply that we follow him, the more we need him. So just because you grow up physically doesn't mean you're growing up and maturing spiritually. And so God, we have this desperate need more and more. And more. You don't outgrow your need. And the second thing he said, church unity is an acknowledgement of how much we need each other. That the unity of this body is an acknowledgement that we can't do this on our own. We weren't created to. And that we're in this together. And so I'm so excited to go into the second half of Ephesians 4. We're going to be in verses 17 through 32 tonight. And I kind of wanted to have my own Bible drill and, and, you know, Miles has his thing about dating and try to match everybody in the world together. And, and Gage kind of did a really cool, like, reverse Bible drill in the morning and then did the dating thing at night. But for me, I wanted to go somewhere different with this. So if you have your Bible, would you hold it up? Would you hold it up? Come on, you're so used to this. If you are not an NFL fan, put your Bible down. Okay, let's go. There's a little bit more. Wow, okay, so many are dropping. Some of you are like, NFL, what does that stand for? Is that a sorority? <laughs> No, 
No, it's the National Football League. Okay, so if you're not an Atlanta Falcons fan, put your Bible down. If you are an Atlanta Falcons fan, I want you to keep it up. Okay, this is the most we've had, and I want it high. Now take your Bible and bring it close to your heart and, and cling to it with everything that you have because it is your only hope this football season. Y'all, we lost to the Saints today, and we lost to a guy who's not even a real quarterback. I can't even, I can't even believe it. I literally can't even believe it. Anyways, will you turn to Ephesians 4? We're going to be in verses 17 through 32. It's painful, y'all. It's painful. But rise up anyways. Am I right? Rise up anyways. Golly, Jesus did it, so will we. Come on. Amen. Amen. All right. We're in verses 17 through through 32. This is what Paul writes. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Paul is saying the Gentiles who are non-believing Gentiles. We've talked about Jew-Gentile reconciliation in Ephesians. Paul is now saying, okay, Jews and Gentiles who have been trying to say, be reconciled to one another, be one, you are one. Now Paul is referring to the Gentiles who have said no to the faith, okay? You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. That, that way of life, Paul is saying, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, Paul is saying, you have heard and know a better way, the way of Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is making connections. He says, the new you pursues righteousness and holiness. We will get there in a moment. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. This is big. Paul's quoting Psalm 4.4 here, and he's saying, hey, One of the biggest problems that we're having, clearly the church in Ephesus is struggling with this, and one of the things that I believe we struggle with today is is harboring bitterness and anger towards one another and letting it go and brushing it away. It's fine, it's fine, I'll just let it go, just let it go. And not addressing the anger, not addressing the situation. This is something that Caitlin and I try to do. We actively try to address the situation, whether I have upset her which never happens, or she has upset me. I'm just kidding, by the way. Um, If you're married, you know that's definitely not true because I'm a guy. Um, So we try to do this. Like before we go to bed, it's like, hey, let's talk about this. And, And there's most likely needs to be a conversation the next day, but we at least acknowledge it and we don't let it take root because Paul goes on in verse 27 and says, and do not give the devil a foothold. You see, Satan was meant to be crushed under our feet, not given a foothold to stand in. Paul is saying, if you let anger go unaddressed, it turns into bitterness, and it turns into a hardened heart. And that's what, that's what the Gentiles do. You, however, 
You're members of this body now, a new family. You put on the new self. Miles and I were talking about this, talking about that this week. Of we really do think that in the church, particularly, that the unaddressed and unresolved anger and bitterness and unforgiveness between people is genuinely the pathway that we let the enemy into the church. Like genuinely. And so Paul is saying, hey, address this quickly. Don't let this just hang in the air. He goes on in 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Sometimes, y'all, I'm not going to lie, sometimes I read Paul's epistles and I kind of read a little sass into him sometimes. It's like, Paul's like, watch your mouth, bro. Like, just watch your mouth. And that's just me. Okay, cool, cool, cool. So maybe I need to take that to the Lord. Um, anyways, maybe that's just me. Um, and Paul's saying, hey, the mouth is powerful. We, we need to be saying things that benefit one another. In James 3.6, James talks about the tongue is, is this little spark that can burn a whole forest down. But as believers and members of this one body, we were not called to burn each other down. We were called to build each other up and ignite a fire of faith in one another, to spur each other on. Paul's saying, hey, be careful with what you say. Sometimes I think we feel like it's okay in the modern church to just kind of spew and just talk. And there's a, there's a fine line between processing and gossiping. Fine line between processing and gossiping. No, I'm just telling you she needs prayer for this. Like, I'm just, I'm being a good brother or sister in Christ. She just, she needs prayer for that. Well, if she needed or he needed prayer so bad for that, I bet they would have come to me and told me that. And, but we just say, no, I'm just processing out loud with you. I would never. You know, it's like, no. We want to build each other up. Paul's saying, say those things that are beneficial for those who are listening. He goes on in 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Put off the old self. Don't do those things. You've been given the Holy Spirit of a seal. It's a, it's a sign that you are in Jesus. You have been redeemed for the day of salvation. That is good news. 31, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. I don't know what was going on in Ephesus that he had to say brawling. I don't, I don't know if they were having like fight nights or something. Like That's pretty intense. And then I got to the end of that, and I'm like, okay, Bitterness, rage, anger, fighting, slander, all that stuff. And it got to malice. And I was like, ooh, malice. Like, ooh, darling, you have so much malice in your heart. And I was like, we don't really talk like that. We don't really use malice. Like, I just am sensing some malice in you right now. Like, I haven't had a conversation like that. And so I looked up the definition of malice. And according to the dictionary, it is the intention or desire to do evil. The intention or desire. So Paul lists all these things. Get rid of all this stuff. And at the end, he, he puts a huge period on it and says, pretty much everything's sinful and wrong. Get rid of it. Even your intention to do it. Get rid of it. And huge is, is his final verse in, 30, in verse 32. He lands the plane here. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave 
you. Title for this sermon for you note takers is Members of One Body. Members of One Body. As Paul is talking about this, we've been reading in in the earlier parts of chapter 4 and then being members of one body and being unified, I started thinking a lot about family. Like Paul is talking to the church family. In the early church, they shared everything. Like they were a tight-knit family. And so I started thinking about my family, my immediate family. I started thinking about my extended family. You know, we, we share blood, and I started actually thinking about family reunions. Anybody, did anyone grow up in a family where, like, you guys did the family reunion thing? Wow, wow. There's a lot more people in this one whose families cared about each other than the morning. Wow. So, so I grew up going to family reunions, and I, and I was seeing people. I was like, wow, we are related? It's like, I prefer that to not be the case. But, but honestly, they're probably thinking the same thing about me. They're like, bro, you are weird, especially in middle school, y'all. Sweater vest, I was chubby. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Seriously, I'm with Gage in the cargo pant thing. Like, I mean, I, all day, every day. Game Boy in one pocket, retainer in the other. It was like, <laughs> let's go. You know, I was like, let's go, baby. So I'm walking, I'm walking into these family units just be like, wow, family is crazy and weird. And then... Some of you don't have to go outside of your immediate family to get weird. It's like, whoa, you're my brother? You're my sister? Oh, you're my mom? My dad? It's like, whoa. And that's, that's blood-related family. And, it, and we find that it's hard to even be unified in the nucleus family, let alone the greater church family. Right? Like, we are different. There's hundreds of people in this room. There was hundreds of people this morning. And we are Different, And Paul is saying, hey, you're members of one body. Unification is something that Jesus prayed for. John 17, 23, Jesus said, I am in them and you in me. He's talking to his heavenly father. So that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus himself prayed for unity. And, and so I'm, I'm just asking the question. I've been studying this for a few weeks now. And just in life in general, studying the church and the Bible and all these things, and I'm thinking, okay, Jesus, like you, you prayed this roughly 2,000 years ago. I feel like I should be seeing more unity than I'm seeing within the church body. What's the, like, why is it not happening? And I'm just asking the question. I'm, I'm not pointing fingers or anything. I'm just wondering for myself and my own personal theology and, like, what is the deal? And as I was thinking about it and praying through it, I kind of came to this realization that to be completely unified, we have to be completely crucified. That I have to die to me so that I can help us become we. I hate that that rhymed. I hate that. Um, so that we can be one. Um, I, I genuinely think that for us to be unified, we have got to be crucified. Paul writes to the church of Galatia. He says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul said, it's not, I've crucified the sinful desires in my flesh. You have too. If you're in Christ, like your old self, your sinfulness, your pride, your selfishness died with Jesus on the cross and was defeated when he raised from the dead. And so we're saying, put off that self. 
And so as I was praying through this and, and thinking through this, I'm like, okay, so if the goal is complete unity, then I have to be unified within myself. So how do I unify the divided parts of myself? Because if we can just, can we just be honest in this room? Like you and I both still struggle with the old and the new. We do. Like if we can just, like let's drop the religion, trying to be cool with each other. Like you and I still struggle with things to a certain degree that is the old self. Would, would we agree on that? Yeah. And so we're in this together. So just no one in this room is alone. And we have this struggle between the old and the new. And so as I have been wrestling with this within myself, I'm going, God, how do, then how can I put the pieces together? And he's like, well, you can't, first of all. Then, then Father, show me. Show me the way to, to be one within myself, to, to fight this fight against the old and to be unified together. And, and according to this scripture and this study, I, I think there's two things. I think the, per, the first way that we unify the divided parts in ourselves is we put off the old and pick up the new. That's number one. We pick, off the, pick up the new, we put off the old, and we step into the newness that we were created for. I didn't come up with this phrase, it's in the scripture, like the word of God preaches itself. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's Satan. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We were dead. We were dead. And so in this struggle of, of, of living partly in the old and partly in the new and the already but not yet, like it's done but it's being done all at the same time, we have to know that new things can't grow in dead places. And, and I, as I was thinking about that in my own life, I, I went back to the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus encounters this woman at the well, and he just reads her mail. He's like, you have been, you've been looking for love in all these men, and you have kept coming up empty. And he says, I am the well that never runs dry. All the love and value you need in infinite quantity can be found right here. This guy sitting right here. And she goes, and, and she's left with a decision that you and I are left with. Why keep looking? We've encountered Jesus. Why would I keep looking in the dead places for new life? It's not there. But the good news, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. He writes in Colossians, put on the new self. Paul is a beast. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Y'all, even though the struggle is very real for you and I, there is hope because he who began that good work will finish it. Like, that is a promise of Scripture. And if you are in Christ, 
and you're still battling the old self, it is okay. Number one, you're not alone. And number two, Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. He will be with you to the end of the age. You are not alone. And so we can struggle together. But in the struggle, Paul has pointed out that there is a mandate to pursue righteousness and holiness. He says you are to be like God, not to be God, but to be like him as children, as image bearers of him in seeking to pursue righteousness and holiness. And I think for some of us, we kind of skip over this part. It's like, wow, I'm in Jesus. I'm, I'm new creation. It's all grace. Yay. Like I'm going to heaven. Now it's time to party. Like, no. Yes, like we celebrate what Christ has done, but no, like you can't just do whatever you want to do. Like grace makes you want to obey because the giver of that grace is so worthy of it. But for so many of us, we don't pursue this righteousness and this holiness because we know we'll fail. And yes, you will fail. I will fail. We experience this daily and being perfect is impossible and Jesus knew that even when he said in Matthew be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect he wasn't saying that to put a yoke of perfection on you he was saying it taking it upon himself knowing that he had to be the one to do it and that is the good news that Jesus has been the perfection that you and I could never in our wildest dreams be and that frees us up but again It's not grace so that we can sin more. It is grace so that we can obey more because he is worthy of our obedience. And so we're called to pursue righteousness and holiness. And I just have to address this briefly. When did we in the modern church decide to look at people who are genuinely pursuing righteousness and holiness and define them as legalistic? Like when did we decide to label that? The genuine, obedient pursuit of righteousness and holiness, being set apart like God. When do we label it as legalism? I think for a a lot of us, and I know for me in the past, me saying that, oh, he's, he's so legalistic. It was a coping mechanism to deal with my lack of pursuit of obedience and holiness. And I'm just admitting that to you, and I think that would be true of a lot of us in this room if we're honest. But I I think that our pursuit of holiness becomes legalism when obedience itself becomes our desire instead of God being the desire of our obedience. I think that is when it becomes legalism. So a lot of what we call legalism isn't. I think it's just judgment on our part. But I think all of us are susceptible to going, you know what, I need to obey, I need to be righteous, I need to be holy, so I'm going to obey for obedience sake. That is legalism. We obey because of the one who has asked us, who has called us. He is worthy of every effort. And like I said, you can't be perfect, I can't be perfect. There's no hope of perfection this side of eternity. Jesus is the only one who can do that and has done that. So so let that weight come off your shoulders. See, perfection is performance. Excellence is worship. Jesus does not expect performance from us. He doesn't want that. He he shunned that in in the teachers of the law, in the Pharisees. 
but our effort in excellence. He is worthy of it. So you and I will fail, we will stumble, we will fall, 100% guaranteed. But as believers in Christ, we have been invited into quick repentance. No, that's not me. I put off the old self. I step into the new. His mercies are new every single day. We're not perfect, but we have been called to this pursuit. And the Holy Spirit is in you and will accomplish this more and more as we mature in Christ. It's like we live in a monarchy. So like, let's take, for instance, England. I've been on The Crown. The new season of The Crown came out, and it is so good. Like the girl that they got to play, Princess Diana, it's unbelievable how much she looks like her. Anyways, casting blows my mind. It's a really cool show. So anyways, it's like we live in a monarchy and the king has said, hey, I'm coming over to your house. We're going to have dinner. Well, what happens at that house when the king enters in? You change the way you're talking, you're acting. Everything about you kind of, oh, the king's in the room. It changes things. His presence changes things. Well, I'm, I'm here to bring you some news. We do live in a monarchy under the king of kings, and he's not in the room. He's inside of you. And so how much should that change and inform the way that we operate? And, and I'm not putting forth a works-based mentality, a work, earn your faith. No, no, no. It's done by Jesus alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. And we walk in the knowledge of the scripture alone, by the power of the Spirit but if you are in Christ, there is a gnawing desire in you that fights your old self that wants to obey. And all of a sudden, sin, it, it doesn't taste good anymore. And you want it less and less. The struggle is real, but, but you run from it. You repent fast, and you come back to God, and you say, I'm yours. That's not me. You put off the old, and you pick up the new, and the beauty is we are not alone. I will say this a thousand times. You are not alone. That is the enemy telling you. If you believe you are alone, that is a lie from the enemy himself. We are members of one body. We are in this together. So the first way we unite the divided parts in us to be one with each other is we put off the old and we pick up the new. The second way we do this is we walk in the freedom of forgiveness. We walk in the freedom of forgiveness in verse 32, Paul says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as Christ in God has forgiven you. And in most Bibles, the end of chapter 4 kind of runs straight into the beginning of chapter 5. So there's not a page break or a paragraph break for a lot of your Bibles. And so it's easy to go, oh, that's so nice, like kind and compassionate, love that, see you in chapter 5. You know, and we just kind of move on right to the next verse. But this is a big deal, and a lot of the unity within ourselves and with each other that we're talking about hinges on this. If you're someone who walks in kind of a, an anger or an unrealistic expectations of the people around you, and you, you set the bar so high that no one could possibly achieve the standard that you have asked them to achieve, and then you let that grow into anger and bitterness, and it leads to rage and slander, and if you're that person, I just want to warn you, you will be a lonely person. 
See, hardened hearts lead to lonely lives. Hardened hearts lead to lonely lives. Verse 32 is monumental to what God wants to do in you and in his church. To be kind and compassionate to one another, to forgive one another. The best piece of relational advice geared more towards marriage but can be applied to all relationships. I was given at a retreat last year. Caitlin and I were, were sent graciously by a family in our church to this retreat at Scott River Lodge. And we got to spend a week together and it was amazing. And in one of the sessions we had, it was just 10 couples, very intimate experience. It was amazing. They said, the best thing you can do for your marriage to make it the healthiest it could ever be is to walk in a constant spirit of forgiveness. Walk in a constant spirit of forgiveness. And at the moment, I was like, okay, cool. Like, you know, we're just like, babe, it's cool. You're good. I forgive you. Like, we're good. Love you. You know, like, and then we move on. But this is deeper than that. This is, this is something that I have dug into a lot over the last year. And I asked myself, what does that mean? Like, really, really, what does that mean if you boil it down? And I came to the conclusion that, that walking in a constant spirit of forgiveness means having the disposition that you have already decided before an offense happens to forgive. Like, I am a person who forgives. That's what you've decided. I'm walking in that spirit. And I think for some of us, the reason that we withhold forgiveness from the people around us is because we're afraid that if I forgive you, the person who has hurt me, that that is communicating to you that what you did was okay. Can we just be honest? I think for a lot of us, that's the fear that if I forgive you, then there's not gonna be any justice. Because that's me saying, oh, it's fine, it's whatever. When it's not, it is not okay. What you did to me is not okay. And I, and I think that that's the real fear. But, but forgiveness does not equal agreement. Forgiving someone of the offense that they have brought against you is not an agreement that that's okay. It's an agreement that Jesus' forgiveness is enough. And I remember about seven seven or so years ago, something happened in my family. My dad made a choice that wrecked our family. It destroyed me. My dad was my hero. And he had brought this hurt and this pain to our entire family and to me. And I remember on this same retreat, the last night was a date night that they had set up. Beautiful evening, beautiful spot on the river. And, and, and what you were tasked to do before you got to the lodge was you got three encouraging letters for, for your spouse from people in their lives that meant a lot to them. So, the, so the, the assignment was three, I got seven for her, obviously. You got seven for Kaylin. So I, I walk up with my stack, I sit down, I'm like, how you doing? And I'm just kind of like, I'm seven. She hands me 16, and I'm just like, whatever. Like, 
You are such an overachiever. Like, if you know my wife, she loves loving people well. And it's such a gift. And so we're reading our letters, whatever, and, and obviously she's done way before me. And I'm also a slower reader. I just like to soak it in, okay? Still hooked on phonics. Anyways, so I, I'm reading all these letters, and I get to the last letter, and it's got my dad's handwriting on it. And it just says, Dad. And my dad has a really specific handwriting. And I open the letter, and I just start tearing up right there. Because you got to remember, all of these memories start flooding back. And I realized just how much I had held on. And how much forgiveness I had withheld. And I hadn't put him in a prison, I had put myself in a prison. And so I had been imprisoned in withholding forgiveness, this lack of freedom for seven years. And then I get to the end of this letter and I have just lost it reading this letter. And I get to the end and after all of this, my dad signs the letter, exceedingly proud father. And in that moment, I realized that I had imprisoned myself and that I had tried to play God and withhold forgiveness because I had been sinned against. And I had neglected to realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And instead of trusting the Lord, I had held on and I said, no, I don't want you to think that this is okay because it's not. But that began this process in me that I had ignored. And my dad and I, we have come to reconciliation and things are great and it's been a process. But what I realized, it's not, this story is not about what my dad did. The story is what Christ has done. And he met me. In my hardened heart, I'm not old, I'm, I'm gonna be 29 soon. And and even in that short amount of life, I've seen my propensity to harden my heart and to withhold forgiveness from people. And I, and I realized in that moment, and as I've been processing over this last year, that I don't wanna be that person. I don't wanna wake up when I'm 70 and be alone. I want my heart of stone to be turned into a heart of flesh. Ezekiel talks about this. And so I've watched this process unfold. And I've realized that the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. There's no one above it and there's no one below it because we've all sinned. Like that is an all-encompassing statement. And so I, I bring that to you to say, yes, there is reconciliation is possible. The Bible talks about that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation as believers in Jesus Christ. And so the saddest thing in the world that we can do is be a people that harbor bitterness and anger and unforgiveness towards the world, but towards one another. And for most of us, it's not just a thing where you have this incredible moment and the Spirit of God comes and you snap your fingers and it's over. Because then we wake up the next day and 
we doubt and we fear, like, well, is this okay that I have forgiven? And yes, it is because you are forgiven. And the forgiveness of Jesus is so real that not only does the Bible say it, yes, you are forgiven, but Jesus showed it by giving his life on the cross as the reality and the completeness of his forgiveness. And so we cannot withhold it from others. And this week we're, we're going into Thanksgiving and some of us will be sitting next to and across from some of the people who have hurt us the most. Even when I started talking about the story of me and my dad, some of you, immediately, someone came to your mind. Whether that was your dad, your mom, your siblings, a friend, a coworker, I don't know. But we are humans in a broken world and there is hurt and there is forgiveness that is needed to at least begin the process. And so this week as you're sitting down with your families and your friends or wherever you're going or whatever you're doing, would the words of Paul resonate in your mind? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. Would we be a people of reconciliation? To walk in the freedom of forgiveness. To, to say no to the old self. To pursue being like God, our Father. We are created in his image. So we are the righteousness of God. And as we walk in this freedom, would we realize that as we walk step by step, and I mean step by step, one day at a time, that we will look up day after day, week after week, year after year, walking in faithfulness, and the body of Christ, his bride will be one, and she will be beautiful. That's the goal. Don't let it just stay in you. As you are becoming one and whole in Jesus, let that go out to the people around you. It is not meant to be held within. They, the world, the broken and lost world, will know us by our love. This is something that only the Spirit of God can do. But would we be open-handed and open-hearted to say, God, do whatever you want to do with me and in me. And would Jesus receive all of the glory and the honor for it? Would you pray with me? Jesus, we are here for you. There is nothing and no one we desire more. Our hope is in you. Our joy is in you. Our future is held in your hands. And so, Father, we give you the past the hurts and the pains. And we say, Father, would you please soften our hearts? We do not want to be a people who are bitter and lost, unable to sense your presence because we have hardened ourselves and separated ourselves from everyone because we don't want to be hurt again. But Father, would we lean in to you and would we step out in faith and believe that even when we don't see it or feel it, you are working. 
because we're given the promise that he who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. Father, would you meet us right where we are? Would you put on our hearts the conversations that we need to have, as difficult and as hard as it is, Father, would you bring reconciliation in Jesus' name? And would we be a people who are whole and full, not scared of the past or the future, but stepping in faithfulness here and now, Father. You are mending hearts in this room. For some, the process has just started. Some are rejoicing that wholeness has come in old relationships. But Father, wherever we are, we give glory and honor to you and we trust in you alone for the glory and fame of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.